1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 17. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Our best guess is that Paul the Apostle first arrived in Corinth near the end of the year of our Lord, 49. It was a, a fruitful trip. Many people met Jesus, and some of whom had considerable standing in the eyes of the, of the world, uh, but most did not. Paul ended up staying in Corinth for a bit and organized a congregation out of these new converts. It was a, uh, a diverse group filled with people from very different ethnic and religious and social backgrounds. He was there for 18 months, but eventually was forced to leave. Fast forward a few years, other well-regarded missionaries have been to Corinth and Paul is now in Ephesus. And Paul wrote them a letter, which is lost. No one's, you know, didn't survive beyond Paul's lifetime. And the Corinthians wrote a letter back to Paul filled with clarifying questions. What did you mean when you said X? And Paul is beginning to prepare his response to that letter, which we call 1 Corinthians. I guess it's 2 Corinthians technically. And as Paul is beginning to write down his response to their questions, a few associates from the household of Chloe, who was one of the original members of the church, visit Paul in Ephesus, and they give an eyewitness account about life there. And they add color to an already distressing picture. Last week, Peter said something quite endearing, and I thought quite helpful. When faced with the gravity of starting Church of the Cross, he took comfort in knowing that things would never get as bad here as they did in Corinth. <laughs> there was a member of the church 
uh, sleeping with his stepmother. Others were getting drunk off the wine on the Lord's table. Others were chaotically using, maybe abusing, spiritual gifts. And everyone, it seems, was quarreling with one another about their favorite preacher. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were Paul, which of those four problems would strike you as the most urgent, the most serious, demanding the initial response, the most injurious to the health of the community and its witness to the gospel? We don't have to speculate, of course. Paul begins by addressing these factions, these divisions, and I find that odd. I mean, partisanship is, it's unfortunate, it's embarrassing, but is it that big of a deal? Well, Paul obviously thought it was. Why? Because he imagined the church as this conflict-free utopia? No. Because Paul realized that the splintering in Corinth signaled that this community had lost sight of Jesus. Their quarreling was the lamentable but logical extension of the status they craved and the idols they served. Paul's response is radical. He addresses their impoverished vision at its root. And so what I want to do this morning is, is read this text, consider this text, with a view to reminding us of the message we believe and the God we worship. I want to say something about the scope, the spirit, and the shape of the gospel. Scope. I want to fill out the context a bit. Corinth uh, was a relatively new city. It had been destroyed a couple centuries before Paul wrote this letter, and then rebuilt a couple decades before Paul was born. The city prospered and was growing rapidly. It was a place, uh, one scholar writes, without aristocracy, without tradition, without well-established citizens. Corinth was a place of opportunity, a place where you could move as a nobody and quickly become a somebody. And therefore, this is another historian, he says, what most controlled the city's life and defined its moral character was a relentless competition for social status, honor, wealth, and power. I think you all know what this feels like. Everywhere you looked, everywhere you went, people were hustling. It was in the air, relentless competition for money, status, power. There's another uh, related dynamic that sheds light on, on this passage, and it's the, um, the unique role that rhetoricians or uh, orators played in the life of Corinth. I'm talking about people who, who talked for a living, who told stories, who gave speeches, who disputed philosophy. The Greco-Roman world thrived on eloquence and lionized its practitioners in a way that's, I guess we can't imagine it. They're like podcast hosts or something like that. And these were the A-list celebrities of antiquity. 
these rhetoricians, these sophists, they would enter cities, they would gather new disciples, and they would charge these outrageous fees to teach their craft. And people were desperate to ingratiate themselves with this group, to be perceived to be in their inner circle. Why? Well, because being in their inner circle, being a patron of a famous orator, was a one-way ticket to social status. You know, it would be like being in an Instagram story with Brad Pitt. All of a sudden, you're a somebody. Last, last fall, I did a, a bike ride with an unusual start. We placed our bikes at the top of a hill, and we walked back down where the organizers had used cones to set up a kind of track, which we ran around twice when the gun went off, and then sprinted up the hill to get our bikes. None of us are getting paid to do this, right? We're all paying to do this. We were joking around with each other before the race, and as soon as the gun went off, people are pushing, shoving, throwing elbows. I kid you not. Well, something similar happened in Corinth whenever a new poet or philosopher or preacher came to town. It was an all-out war to jockey for position and become a respected patron of an influential orator. Do you know what Paul's problem was with the factions in the Corinthian church? His problem was that these Christians were acting just like the culture around them, lionizing different missionaries and fighting to be the president of their respective fan clubs. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter or Cephas. It's important to note that these factions, they were not doctrinal. They were not about, you know, important ideas about God or Christ or salvation. This is about status, about popularity, about how you were perceived in the community. You would advance in other people's eyes by claiming that, you know, I'm one of Paul's guys. I was baptized by him. Or, you know, the, the learned, very eloquent Apollos? He's my dude. Or the, my favorite, because, I mean, we all know these types of people, are those who say, I'm bypassing human teachers altogether. I follow Christ. Paul says, are you serious? This is so off base. You are missing the whole scope of the gospel. Jesus did not come to planet earth, live, die, rise, ascend into heaven to inaugurate a, a rat race for self-promotion. You're throwing elbows, Corinthians. You're pushing people down to bolster your own social standing, all the while ignoring the beating heart of Christianity. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and his mission is to deliver the disenfranchised, to dignify the disgraced. You are, you're missing the point. These divisions were a big deal because of what they revealed. The Corinthians were more interested in their growth, their wisdom, their flourishing, their maturity, their elevation, than the good of other people. Paul began this congregation as a, a place of healing for hurting people, and it had devolved into this atomized race for status. I had a conversation this past week with someone from our church about when faith became important to her. 
And this person was not raised as a Christian, but she recounted always being drawn to the Lord. She knew there was like a promise in there for her. And what held her back was this sense that Christians are faultless. They're people who don't struggle. They're people who, A, want the right things out of life, and B, actually get them. I can't be part of this group, she remembered thinking. They won't have me. I don't have it all together. But God, she said, sought her while she was a stranger. Now look, no one, I've never met anyone who is in principle opposed to welcoming strangers like that into their church. But inevitably, we create barriers for people like that to come in. We inadvertently cherish things, values, practices that keep people away. And look, people, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, are complicated. And sin, like the actual sin that people commit and never tell anyone about, is messy. Do we want to hear about that? Do we want to share that with each other? Do we want to be in in meaningful relationships with people whose lives are chaotic and kind of falling apart? You know, it's one thing to be like stressed out because of work or family, but like what about someone with a face tattoo? Paul reminds us here about the range of the gospel. It's immeasurable horizon. Jesus He encourages the godly, but but first and foremost, Jesus is exonerating the guilty. That's the the scope of his mission. Spirit. I want to draw your attention to the the weird parenthesis in verse 16. I don't think that's in the original text, but who cares? Paul is explaining why it's so ludicrous to form parties around Jesus or Paul himself. He says, look, I I wasn't crucified for you. You weren't baptized in my name. Thank God I didn't baptize many of you. Now this, I can obviously not prove this happened, but I imagine the scribe who's taking down Paul's words, interjecting at this point, saying, well, Paul, you did baptize Crispus and Gaius too. And Paul's saying, yeah, good point. I, I also may have baptized the household of Stephanus. Honestly, there might have been more. I forget. It's beside the point. Now, I want to say this, this brief, almost kind of throwaway aside, is a glimpse, a meaningful glimpse, into Paul's self-understanding. Notice Paul's honesty. Notice how he kind of downplays his own significance. And notice the ad hoc, almost unfinished quality of the verse itself. Soren Kierkegaard once wrote an essay called The Difference Between a Genius and an Apostle. 
I've never read that essay, <laughs> but it's a very provocative distinction. Am I right? You don't have to read it to get the point. It's, it's not human excellence of any kind that confers spiritual authority. I think that's what the point of the essay is. And Paul, I think this is actually very important. Paul shows us that nuance, polish, sophistication, yeah, they're great, but they're not all important. Paul, was, he was just not interested in being admired. He, he wore normal sneakers. Let the reader understand what that means. I, I'm not trying to make here a, a theological argument for sloppiness, but I am trying to say something about the spirit or, or the character of the life that we live in view of God's mercy. It's appropriate, dare I say biblical, to live out of, out of our weaknesses, to present our weaknesses, not our strengths. And we are invited into this life of abundance, not because we're right all the time, but because we're, we're open to the influence of the Spirit of God. And what we have to offer people is not a you know, pristine congregation or a flawless Sunday morning experience. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I think, we carry this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. The, the, our corporate spirit, that's what I'm trying to get at. And it's like, you know, honesty, it's more important than elegance. Openness is, is more important than, than rectitude, than being right. Scope, spirit, shape. Paul, he, he closes the reading by disabusing the Corinthians of the idea that his ministry can be likened to the itinerant speakers, sophists, people I just described earlier. And he does this by making two points. First, he says, I'm not interested in, in having a fan club. Christ did not send me to baptize. Now, I think that's less a depreciation of baptism. Might be a little bit of that, but I think it's less about that and more of a reminder about Paul's greater purpose, what he ultimately came to do, which is, of course, to preach, to preach the gospel. But... Second way Paul distinguishes himself from the sophist is Paul says, I do not preach with wisdom and eloquence. Because if I were to preach like that, the cross of Christ would be emptied of its power. This is a, a startling assertion about a preacher's ability to limit the efficacy of God's power. This is especially startling when the person reading that passage is a preacher. And this is especially, especially startling when the person reading this passage is a preacher who tries to be eloquent. What do we do with this passage? What does he mean? Well, commentators, they point out the irony that this argument against rhetoric is embedded within a tightly argued piece of rhetoric. 
And if Paul's letters are any indication as to how he preached, which is reasonable to expect they are, then Paul certainly had a command of language. So what do we do? You know, it might be helpful to kind of think about the difference between form and content here. As if to say, is Paul disavowing a, a skill set, a way of speaking that influences people and can be used to gain power? Or is Paul criticizing something more basic, not just style, but substance, the message itself? Now, like most things, the answer is probably both. And there are passages, not this one, but there's like, I think it's in 1 Thessalonians, for example, where Paul very clearly says, I am not trying to flatter people with words. He does, in some ways, say the whole style, the toolkit of rhetoric as it was then practiced is not something I'm comfortable adopting. But I think that here, Paul is actually saying something about content. Like, okay, Corinthians, I'm not this effortlessly graceful speaker, and I know you don't like that. But I know what you don't like even more is the fact that my message, what I have to say, is pretty different too. Jesus did not send me to preach the word of wisdom that you think you want. Jesus sent me to preach the word of the cross. Well, what's the shape of worldly wisdom? I think the shape is a ladder. It's advice about how to get to the top, how to become the most successful, the most spiritual, the most mindful, the most attractive, the most published, the top of your field, the next bucket list family. Ladders are everywhere. They're inescapable. They're inevitable. They're enticing. They're exhausting. What about wisdom in the shape of the cross? What does that look like? On January 9th, the New York Times asked their readers to describe a book that changed their life. A week later, they published a few of the responses. Allison Stevenson from Waldeboro, Maine, wrote this. I read Flannery O'Connor's The Violent Bear It Away my freshman year in college. Her vision of God's grace, present even at moments of tragedy or cruelty, so moved me that I wrote a senior thesis on the subject. The idea of grace that is usually invisible to our judgmental eyes, stayed with me. And this is when it hits the stratosphere. When I became a foster mother, it reminded me daily that I knew nothing of what was truly contained in the lives of the parents whose children I was trying to love into well-being. My compassion for those struggling parents was critical to my ability to honor their place in their children's lives, to trust that they too 
were trying their best. O'Connor was honest about the messiness of this endeavor, how grace can change us or follow us unbidden. That and her sense of humor have kept the violent Barrett away as a touchstone in my life. Wisdom in the shape of the cross, it is grace that is invisible to judgmental eyes. It's grace that births compassion for ourselves and for others entangled in the messiness of life. It's grace that changes us, follows us, even unbidden. That's what it looks like. The gospel's scope is limitless. It absolves the guilty. It justifies the godless. Its spirit is self-forgetful. Its shape is the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.